Hello and welcome to White Swan, the podcast that gives you the inside story on how leaders tackle crises. I'm Gavin McGaw, and on this podcast, we aim to furnish you with the learnings behind the headlines so that when the proverbial hits the fan, you can keep things turning. On this episode of White Swan, we're going to be joined by Tom Gretrix. Tom is a former Labour Party Member of Parliament and is now CEO of the Nuclear Industry Association. During our interview, we look at the energy crises, the dangers of short-term thinking, how social media can be used to manufacture crises, the approach to crises within the nuclear industry, and of course, the importance of football fans. But before we hear from Tom, I'm joined by Karen White of National in Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK. Welcome, Karen and Gary. Hey, Gav. Hi, Gav. Now, Karen, Tom is a brilliant and very level-headed leader. I hope you heard that in that interview. Um, You can understand why he is so respected by those within the energy sector. I find our discussion about the danger of short-term thinking really, really important. He's talked about people only acting when the crisis point had been reached and how unhealthy a characteristic of contemporary politics that was. I think we'd all agree with that. Often we see our job as challenging business leaders to get ahead of the curve on reputational issues to stop them becoming crises. But how seriously do business leaders take doing that in reality? You know, it's interesting, Gav. So I've worked in the energy sector for more than 15 years, and about half of that time was in the provincial government. And I always found it so frustrating as a bureaucrat to see that short-term decision-making and the politicizing of energy policy decisions. And so I'll have to say, Tom's comments, they really and truly resonated for me. But when it comes to getting ahead of issues before they become a crisis, I find it really comes down to the culture of an organization and their tolerance for risk. You know, I've supported cabinet ministers who were very focused on what constituents think. And so they were very open to strategies that resulted in first mover advantage and getting out early ahead of an issue to help shape the story. So get the facts on record and really set the record straight. In more conservative organizations that aren't comfortable with that level of public scrutiny, I find they try to avoid it at all costs, despite our best advice. And so typically what I would observe is that they're enacting a proactively reactive strategy. So they aren't necessarily willing to make the first move, but we do have a plan in place to react swiftly to an escalating situation. Gary, what about you? Well, I think beyond just short-termism, one of the things Tom was talking about was the fact there's always been a challenge in communications, which is how to take something complicated and explain it in a way that makes it understandable. And I think today we're communicating in quite a tribal ecosystem and that principle has been distorted a little bit on many fronts, but perhaps particularly political fronts, so that what we have is people pretending that complex situations are actually simple, they're actually black and white. And one of the challenges that we have as communicators is how we use that full suite of communications channels to be able to communicate complexity and nuance, but that's very difficult. And I think that's one of the things that smart leaders at the moment, having perhaps looked back over the last few years, are starting to wrestle with. How do we put across the full nuance of the situations that we're dealing with? And that's something that I think we're seeing a lot more interest and understanding how to deal with that. That's really interesting, Gary. Well, let's hear from Tom Gretrix now in his interview. Each episode of White Swan features an in-depth conversation with leaders so you get to learn about their crisis experience and the lessons you need to hear. I'm delighted to be talking to today's guest. 
Tom Gretrix was a Labour MP between 2010 and 2015 and also a highly respected shadow energy minister. He's now Chief Executive Officer of the Nuclear Industry Association, which represents 250 companies across the nuclear supply chain in the UK, so very much in the news at the minute. He's also Vice Chair of the Football Supporters Association and represents supporters on the FA Council. Tom, welcome to White Swan. Thank you. Nice to see you, Gavin. Now, you've ended up in a big job at a very big and important time within the industry you're in. Energy's front page news for us all. What's your story, though? How did you end up where you are? I sometimes wonder myself how that (laughs) happened, really, to be honest. I'm not a nuclear engineer. I'm not a physicist or someone who has a background in anything technical at all. I've sort of ended up, I think, in this role, really, when I trace back what I've done in my life and my career through a combination of bloody-mindedness, being argumentative, and being, if it doesn't sound too sort of ostentatious, interested in intellectual challenge. So always wanted to do and get involved in things that spark my interest, but wouldn't necessarily be the thing that you would expect somebody to do. So I immediately before I did this, I was a politician, as you've just said. Before I was a politician, I was a political advisor. Before that, I worked in local government, I worked in the NHS in different levels. And before that, I worked for a trade union. And before that, I was a political advisor the first time round. none of which has got anything to do with anybody in my family does at all. I come from a completely non-political background in terms of my family. And nobody, I think, in my family has got any particular interest in politics other than possibly one of my twin daughters. So I went to grammar school in Kent. I was the token left winger in that scenario. I enjoyed being the person that would argue with everybody else about things, about whether this grammar school should even exist way back when I was a very radical teenager. I enjoyed arguing with the teachers and anybody who would entertain arguing. (laughs) And then I went to university and I sort of ended up in a world where I thought that politics at university, student politics was just a load of nonsense. But because I happened to be university in London, it meant that I got involved in being a typical one day a week volunteer researcher when then party in opposition doesn't have many resources looking for support and help and I got into it that way really and that led me to being involved in energy policy and interest in energy policy and then into what I do now as a result of having spent a few years in politics but nearly all of that time completely focused on energy which is an endlessly fascinating subject because it is so absolutely integral to everything else. If you think about it, almost any area of public policy is impacted by energy. And we've seen that more so than ever over the course of the last few months. You know, as much as it's about geopolitics, as much as it's about the impact on the environment, it's also very much a social issue as the cost implications we're living through at the moment and what that feeds into in terms of wider inflationary impacts and everything else. So it's absolutely integral. And it's always been an area where there's a huge amount of challenge, which goes beyond the technical aspects of particular ways of generating electricity or producing energy for transport or heating or industrial processes or whatever you're talking about. Actually, it's a massive challenge that I think have been neglected for a long period because we didn't need to do anything. And the result of that inaction is now catching up with us. And that's what's put into the headlines. Let's get into that now, Tom. Let's start with that. You talk about inaction and, you know, you've been in Parliament, you've been in politics. You see people often looking at the short term rather than the long term reality of what needs to happen here. Do you think it's a political failure across many decades that's led us to this energy crisis? 
I do. I think it's a series of political failures that are a consequence of the way in which increasingly over probably, I would argue, a good at least 20 years, we've had an approach to politics which has been about trying to simplify everything, making it very retail and therefore immediate, and the shortening of time horizons on anything that government does you see it play out again and again to the extent now that it's not even about the next election. It's almost, it's not even the next news cycle. It's how you condense something into almost a 280 character world, which would be fine if things were simple. But actually, the things that people look to governments to do or governments get pushed on or, or need to think about, they aren't simple often. They're very significant things you have to consider. And there are lots of different aspects. And there's always nuance, there's always trade off. And there's always prioritisation you have to take into account. And doing nothing sometimes is an active decision. And sometimes it's a very bad decision, but it will buy you some time. And political lives are so short that it's hugely tempting for individual politicians if they're faced with something which might be potentially a bit unpopular, might be something that sparks debate, might be unsure about exactly how the consequences will turn out to think, well leave it for a bit because I'm not going to be here in a year's time. And they're usually right. They're not there in a year's time. And you mount that layer upon layer of that. And what you end up with is a situation where decisions aren't taken. And the consequence of that is you narrow your options and it becomes more and more expensive to try to play catch up. And that's sort of where we are at the moment. There's that famous Nick Clegg quote about the nuclear industry, isn't there? Where he sort of talks down the length of time it would take and the complexities it would take to put them in place. And I think if he had a different point of view when he had said that quote, we'd be in a very different place now, wouldn't we? Yeah, look, take that example. Nuclear power stations take time to build. They take almost longer to get through the various permitting processes and planning and everything else than they do to actually build them. But they take a long time. But once you build them, they produce a lot of electricity for a very long time from a relatively small footprint. And so they're a long-lived asset. But the best time to build a nuclear power station has always been about 15 years ago. The next best time is now. And... Nick Clegg made those comments, I think, in the 2010 election campaign. If we'd started building more than just one in the whole of the decade between 2010 and 2020, we would be in a very, very different position now. And that's a reality, frankly, that a lot of people in politics have started to acknowledge now, finally. But it didn't have to get to that stage of crisis. And I I sometimes wonder whether our political culture is almost geared only to crisis You know, it's only when something gets to a crisis point that anybody ever actually acts. It's easier not to, so you don't. And there's always going to be some crisis. So it's very reactive, uh, very short-termist. And that may be a a feature and a consequence of the way in which political culture has evolved. But I don't think it's a particularly healthy characteristic. And it's certainly something that you would hope that future generations and the next group of politicians should think about a bit better and try to have a longer-term perspective to some issues which you're only going to solve in the long term. The decisions that we made in this country in various areas in decades past have established foundations for our society that have endured, but the mistake has been not to renew those decisions on at the time at which you should have done, and that has, I think, led to some of these aspects of the crisis that I'm talking about, and that's not just in energy, that's across other areas as well. I mean, I think it's really, really interesting for me because, you know, like you, I love politics. I love reading about politics from the past and what the plans are going forward. And every party that comes into power freshly has a plan. 
I recently went on to the National Archives in the UK and dug out the memos from Tony Blair to his senior small team at the heart of Downing Street uh, in 1997, where he set out a very clear narrative, strategy and a plan for delivery. And it was very clear what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it. But of course, events get in the way. And the problem is people think politics has so many people in it and the civil service is so huge that it's unaffected by day-to-day events, but it really isn't, is it? And that's the big problem here. It, It is. I completely accept that. But on the other side, I would also say that I think probably as an incoming administration, that one in 1997, probably the last one that had a complete sense of mission on what it wanted to do and how it was going to try to do it. Now, that was partly as a result of that party being out of power for so long and the process that the Labour Party went through to get to a position to be electable in that period. So that sense of, it wasn't just a sense of optimism that was around at that time, I remember very clearly, but also a real sense of purpose. And I don't think we've really had that any time that we've changed administration since. And that is part of what we're reaping at the moment. There hasn't been that same sense. And if I'm being really frank about it, I'm not sure that I detect that now either. Yeah, I think you're right. No one seems to have a mission. They want to have power, but they don't have a mission to deliver in power. Yeah. Can I just go back to nuclear for a second? Sure. You know, this problem is not just a problem in the UK. Nuclear is seen as a problem in a lot of nations around the world where it should be, I'm sure you would suggest, a solution. So Germany and other places, why is that though? What's the legacy that causes that? Is it other events that happened in the past, mistakes that have been made in the past? Why is there such a negative viewpoint? Well, interestingly, increasingly it's not. If you look at look across Europe now, as in, in 2022, as opposed to even four or five years ago, you've seen quite a significant reassessment in a range of different countries. We talk about Poland, Czech Republic, Finland, France. France has always had a lot of nuclear, but it's sort of attitude replaced of saying we're going to reduce the amount of nuclear we have to actually wanting to renew some of that. And that's a consequence of a reality check that people have had in the past period. But to your wider point, there is certainly in some places, an aversion to nuclear power, which has, I think, mostly come from a combination of the association in some people's minds and some political groups' minds with putting together nuclear power and military nuclear applications. And it's very, very different, but it doesn't matter in the sense that it's the same physics that sits behind different ways in which you use atomic power. So there's partly that, and partly that if you go back to, particularly if you're talking about Germany and Austria, I think it's in the Austrian constitution that the state should be opposed to nuclear power, which is quite a weird thing to have in a constitution. That is part of the political culture of those countries, and in Germany it's probably from the 1970s really in the anti-nuclear movement. There was an environmental movement, and then although the reality of having a very high amount of carbon-free power has meant that many environmentalists and climate activists have shifted their position on nuclear and the next generation have a very pro-nuclear perspective because they see the wider benefits it brings. For some people, if you've got a view that is almost an article of faith, you entrench, and you see that in other things, don't you? People entrench their views and try and find ways of justifying their position, even if they become a little bit less credible as positions. It gives them the comfort that that is a thing that they're against. And in Germany, it's so horrendous the extent that the closing down of nuclear power stations earlier than when they got to the end of their life in Germany is a big significant factor as why German emissions have hardly come down because they've replaced that with burning lignite to the absurdity of an onshore wind farm being dug up to facilitate mining for lignite for coal. 
to be able to put into power stations and the huge reliance on imported gas from Russia at the same time as saying, well, we're going to shut these perfectly safe and working power stations down that have been working for a generation and could go on for several decades hence. And that's when you get political emotion completely overriding any sense of logic at all and actually being detrimental to the overall policy goal of decarbonisation. You're making it worse, not better. But sometimes you get those sort of ideological points. And nuclear is one of those areas where in some countries that is exactly what happens. It's extraordinary, really, isn't it? But the events, as terrible as they are, are actually helping the industry, I guess, make the case now. But this is about crises, this podcast, Tom. What's the approach the industry takes to planning and preparing for crises? Because obviously there's been examples of instance in the past, etc., which from what I can see, has led to great new regulations being put in place and new approach and best practice. Is there a real rigour in the approach? The nuclear industry around the world is very, very conscious of any issues relating to safety because of, in the early days, in the 50s and 60s, there wasn't any, any real consideration given to what you do with waste, for example. And famously, if you go to Sellafield in Cumbria, you'll see there are areas where effectively are like big open-air swimming pools, people just chuck stuff in think about that later now process of what's happening there now is most of that has been taken out and decontaminated but that's been billions of pounds of work over a long period of time to sort of get back to a good position so the impact of a safety culture and very high profile events that have happened chernobyl fukushima are the ones that usually come into people's minds now i would argue with fukushima it wasn't actually a nuclear issue it was a tidal wave that killed 20 odd thousand people no one's died as a result of radiation or anything to do with the the power station that that melted down there but what did happen was it caused a huge amount of disruption and also a sense amongst a proportion of the population that they weren't sure what the impacts were and because it's quite hard you're dealing with something in terms of radiation that you can't see hear smell it's around you the whole time but there's no way of quantifying it or very hard unless you've got the equipment with you so it therefore makes it something that is almost intangible to people and therefore it's quite easy for people's fears or concerns to be amplified in a way that isn't always responsible and all those things come from that so all of that feeds into the approach that people who are involved in nuclear have to preparing for or being able to deal with the most minute level of risk because it's a culture that's been built over generations. That's what you do. So whenever there's any potential issues that might become in broad terms a crisis, we spend a huge amount of time going through preparing for what you would do if something happened at a particular power station and the drills the whole time. So it's almost ingrained in the culture to be ready for a crisis that is probably a million to one chance would ever happen. People sometimes argue, well, that's healthy, isn't it? That's good because it means you're constantly vigilant. But it also sometimes, I think, means that you can be far too risk averse in general behaviour and approach to things. So people's criticism of the nuclear industry is often that it's slow it's deliberate, takes a long time to do things. Yeah. And it's very structured and logical, which means that perhaps some people from other areas will look at it and say, well, there's no room for innovation or entrepreneurialism or looking at new approaches, taking best practice from other industries and applying it is more of a mentality to say, oh, we can't do that because this is nuclear. 
And, you know, there's a trade-off there and there's a balance there that probably needs to be struck in a better way for the future. It's interesting, though, because when we look at other industries, whether it's airlines or other transportation industries, you know, that mindset should be front and centre, but it's not always. And it's making sure it can be. So, you know, it's probably better to be where you are, actually accept the point in terms of attracting investment in and innovation and all that creates difficulties. But it's probably a better side of the coin to fall on at this stage. So you're an MP you know, interest in energy and then a shadow energy minister. You were in parliament when the Japanese tsunami hit the nuclear power plant. What was the discussions like within parliament, within the energy sector then? Well, to start with, I remember it very clearly when it <clears throat> when it happened from just sort of seeing on Sky News or BBC News Channel, one of the rolling news channels, the first pictures and everything else. And to start with, it was about a tidal wave and the effect of a tsunami. Then it started to become about, well, look, what does that include? And there's a power plant there and there's four reactors and three reactors shut down perfectly appropriately, as you would do. One didn't and got overwhelmed. And then it very quickly becomes a nuclear disaster, which it really wasn't. But, you know, that's the way in which it sits in people's minds. And that's why when people talk about nuclear and why they're concerned about it, the two words you most often get are Chernobyl and Fukushima. And in that time in 2011, when that happened, at around that time there was some legislation going through which was electricity market reform which was putting in a framework to facilitate investment in low carbon infrastructure not just nuclear but particularly offshore wind which at that stage was to sort of developing and what happened was at that point it was Chris Hune who was the Secretary of State very quickly put a hold on any nuclear development in the UK and he asked a guy called Mike Wakeman, who had previously been the chief of the regulator, who at that point just recently retired, to undertake a report into the implications of Fukushima for plans in the UK, and did that straight away. And I think actually, you know, that was absolutely the right thing to do, because he produced this report and went through all of the plans. Were there to be a tsunami in the UK what would that impact be, both in terms of the existing power stations, the ones that have been decommissioned, and sites where they've proposed to build new ones? Reality is that it's highly, highly unlikely there would ever be a tsunami in the UK. We don't have the same sort of tectonic plates and all the other issues that, were, that sit behind that, but nevertheless proposed some additional level of safeguard in some places. But what it did was it meant that there wasn't any real criticism of the government's approach to that at that time, because everyone basically said that was the right thing to do. It meant that when the report came out, it was properly considered as being thorough and authoritative and balanced. That's partly to do with, it wasn't that it was a report or a process the government had to be forced into doing. And it provided a level of assurance and reassurance to those both in terms of the political cycle, but also more widely, that the approach that was being taken was appropriate. And then after a short pause, he got on with the process of the three projects that were at various stages of development, taking them forward. Now, only one of those actually ended up being built. The other two fell by the wayside for completely different reasons, but it wasn't because of Fukushima. Now, you contrast that with what happened in Germany at that point. There was a almost an immediate political reaction to say, well, we must get off of nuclear. We won't build anymore and we have to shut down all of our remaining reactors. And it became an article of political faith that that had to happen. The great irony in this was Angela Merkel that made that call. As someone who is usually regarded as a very logical, methodical politician whose background is in science. But she did that partly because the political pressure coming from the Greens at that point in Germany meant she didn't think she could withstand it. And that would have fed into her re-election chances. So there's politics everywhere. 
But the integrity of the approach the UK took then, I think, was a perfect way of handling your response to a crisis that wasn't affecting you in your own shores, but was actually would have, if handled badly, potentially quite significant implications. It's interesting hearing you talk about that in the way you just have, Tom, because when you speak to other people from Parliament, they always refer to you as someone who's above the sort of day-to-day political fights, someone who's very rational, enjoys a good argument, but likes it to be fact-based rather than politically based. And the way you just talked about that there really makes that clear. I mean, did you enjoy being an MP? Because I guess you were there before the madness, really, of Brexit and all those other things? Yeah, look, it was a massive privilege too. I really enjoyed it. I was very fortunate that it was almost by accident I ended up in Parliament. I wasn't one of these people whose burning ambition was to be a member of Parliament and would go around trying to get selected place to place. It just sort of happened almost by accident for me. And I loved it. I loved lots of aspects of it. People always say the thing they find rewarding is the stuff you do for your constituents, and that is certainly true. I enjoyed all of that. But I also enjoyed the parliamentary bit as well. But, you know... I only know this from from those horrible things that happen on Twitter where they give you a Twitter anniversary sort of thing. I hadn't realised until a, a few weeks ago that I'd been on Twitter for 10 years. And I've not been on Twitter for 10 years because at some point in late 2011, I think it was, PLP suggested that I should have a social media account. And way back then, not many people did. I remember you people used to suggest to other people who they should follow and it was very early and it was almost sort of harmless. By the time I lost the election in 2015, in Scotland, we'd been through a referendum, which in many ways was a precursor to what everybody else experienced, probably in the European referendum, where the emotional drive of a position meant facts went out the window. It was incredibly abusive, the whole environment around everything. And I felt that particularly a greater level of sensitivity, having been born in England, but representing a constituency in Scotland where I had lived for a while, but unmistakably, as soon as I opened my mouth, not from the west of Scotland. And to be really frank about it, when it got towards that election, I was quite relieved that I didn't win because I could see just the Scottish bit, how it had gone and how horrible it was and how entrenched and tribal and the ability to have a rational debate and discussion about an issue and come to a conclusion or even if you still differ, but be able to disagree without being disagreeable. I just almost felt like that had gone. And I felt in the time I was Shadow Energy Minister, I used to say that I was shadowed about six different energy ministers in that time. Charles Hendry was one of them at the start, and someone I always got on really well with, partly because I think we have a similar approach, which is your duty as an opposition is not to oppose for opposition's sake. It's to scrutinise, to check to to be able to suggest different ways or think of things you might not have considered and you might well end up on a different side of the vote on something that doesn't mean you shouldn't seek to try to contribute in a positive way yeah I think that's gone from our political culture I don't know whether it could come back maybe it's a pendulum that will swing back but you know I would hate to be in parliament now I'd absolutely hate it I think because everything's so short-termist And it's so absolute that it doesn't actually leave the ability for the good things that can come out of political process to happen as often as they should. Do you think social media in general has had a detrimental impact for governments and politicians trying to deal with crises? If we look specifically at that, because I remember when I used to work in politics, we'd always have a meeting with the leader first thing in the morning to look at what the newspaper said. And it always struck me as an odd thing to do. Why is it so important what the Westminster bubble thought, which is in effect columnists in newspapers, because no one else is reading them. But that's now become 
what everyone's doing about politics is quite scary, really. Yeah, and it's not even once a day, is it? It's, you know, almost minute by minute. And what is a crisis? Because, you know, there is now almost an industry in trying to manufacture crisis through social media. And sometimes they become crises by default. And if you stop back and look at them and think, well, actually, that isn't really a crisis, but that becomes something which massively distracts everybody from anything else. And the ability of... uh, to be deflected from your purpose or what you're trying to do, it must be incredibly difficult now. And I suppose I'd just take an example from this week or last week with the current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and going to COP27, for example, becoming a... Now, that is, frankly, ridiculous on two levels. One, that your political judgment is so poor that you think you could get away with not doing it. But secondly, then it becomes a big thing about your U-turn and you know that change of approach and how many hours do you think were probably wasted in Downing Street, considering how do you make the U-turn in a way that looks the least reactive and weak and all the considerations about it, which is born from one poor political judgment. And then secondly, a decision change that is only driven by the response and the sort of sense of the crisis rather than something much more material. And I just find it pretty depressing, frankly. I think depressing is the right word. And also, look, in the corporate world, you have crisis teams who go in to deal with situations to allow business as usual to occur. That doesn't happen in politics, as we both know. We know that Downing Street is all built around individuals these days rather than processes, which is quite scary. You said, you know, you weren't too upset to lose your seat, but it is a big change because there's a quote, isn't there? There's nothing more X than an XMP. Yeah. So was it a bit of a personal crisis when that happened? I mean, look, if you lose your seat unexpectedly, that's one thing. The context that I was in Scotland in 2015, when basically everybody lost, everybody from the Conservative, Labour and Liberal Democrats, apart from one each in Scotland, all lost. And that wasn't unexpected. You'd known it was coming from the autumn before and most certainly from the early part of that calendar year. So you had a good at least three or four months to get used to it. And anybody who was in Scotland at that time who hadn't realised that can't really read what's going on. So you knew it was coming. So it wasn't like a shock or a surprise at all. And as I said, in some ways, it was almost, for me personally, it was a bit of a relief. But it is a big change because you go from feeling like everything you do is scrutinised, but the other side that comes with that is that there's plenty of attention on you or if you want to say something or do something, you know, you'll get picked up and noticed and everything else. And then you're just another person at Canvas Lang Station getting a train into Glasgow thinking about what you're going to do next. And I, I said this to people, former colleagues of mine, who then lost in 2019 when there was quite a seismic shift in, in parts. The best thing you can do in that situation is stop and pause and take a breath. And if you're able to, if you're able to have two or three months where you don't actually you know, do very much professionally, it's a really good thing to decompress because you're going into a completely different, more normal, yes, more usual, but completely different environment, whatever it is you choose to do next. Yeah, that's fascinating. Look, I want to sort of take you back to maybe even before you were a member of parliament, but certainly in your early years of being in parliament when there was austerity and the reaction to the last economic crisis that was sort of, what, 2007, 2008. And I think what we're seeing now is we're sort of seeing an economic collapse, which probably started in 2020 with COVID, if we're being honest, and the injection of cash into the system from governments then. And now it's all being played out. And it's probably going to last to the very least until 2025 or beyond. And people are quite worried about what this means for, for the world. From your perspective, you've worked with unions in the past. You've worked with 
your constituents, you've worked with ministers and governments and prime ministers. Well, how do you see this? How do you see it playing out? And is there any advice you could give, particularly your work with unions, et cetera, to corporate leaders who are seeking to sort of find a path through this economic crisis? Yeah, look, I think it's a really tough environment that we're in and we're going into, and I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And the impact of inflation driven by a number of different factors on almost everybody's real life existence. I don't think it's a situation where there are going to be many people who aren't affected negatively by this. So it's a pretty horrible period I think we're going into. I think, you know, in terms of that point about unions, you can see what's happening now with the rail strikes, for example. Unlike previous times when there have been periods of industrial action, particularly in transport, there's not a huge amount of frustration with the people going on strike in quite the same way. And I think the reason for that is because people see elements of their own situations being played out. If you haven't actually had a pay rise for such a long period of time and real terms pay for years, and this affects a lot of the public sector as well, then you get to a point where people really feel that they don't have any alternative and they feel so absolutely let down and demoralized that you end up in that situation. For corporate leaders, I'm not underestimating the scale of what they're having to deal with as well in in different ways. But the thing I'd say is that, and this might sound like it's the sort of thing you get from PR advices maybe, but don't do really stupid things. Really stupid, even if they're almost, they become totemic things where You know, the one about the gigawatt factory, for example, where they'd hired a mansion with a swimming pool and a jacuzzi for their executive team to rent while they were in the northeast, for example. Things like that, which are at one level trivial, but at another level are hugely symptomatic and speak to people's sense of unfairness, I think is the sort of thing that you would just try to, and it's obviously easy to say, isn't it? in hindsight, but try to avoid doing in the first place and try to have a bit of foresight about some of those types of things because they might not be material in the grand scheme of things, but they do feed into a a sense that people have that we're not, to borrow a phrase, all in this together. Yeah. So there's a wider crisis happening. What you're saying is don't do self-harm in that crisis. Don't allow your processes to become the story. Yeah. And too often they do. And very often they do. And I think, why do they? Because there is sometimes, and in some environments, a level of complacency about things that they don't really matter. When they do, they absolutely do. And the the lack of challenge, Tom, I would argue, that comes from a team. Yeah, well, that's also something which is quite hard for people, but it's absolutely necessary. You really do need, I mean, people talk, you know, that phrase about sunlight being the best form in disinfecting. You're also much better disinfecting yourself rather than waiting for it to be done via the media or via elsewhere. And if you've got strong sort of scrutiny processes, you can do that. And I would argue the best companies and best organisations are able to do that exactly for that reason. And it's not a weakness in an organisation. I would argue it's a strength actually to be able to have forums and processes that enable a level of scrutiny and challenge. I think that's a great point to make there. You're identifying the gaps between what you're saying and what you're doing and then stopping these issues becoming crises later. Yeah. So look, We're facing a difficult situation here globally, but particularly in the UK. We've got a Labour Party who are miles ahead in the polls, probably a couple of years to an election. Do they really want to win that election in those circumstances? I mean, it's going to be very difficult to have an impact, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be a horrible inheritance. 
if if we work on the basis that the likely next election is a sort of eighteen months or so time, you know, coming into that will be will be horrible because a lot of the big issues won't have been solved by then, even if processes and, and approaches have been put in place that will eventually deal with some of those things. So it will be. But do they want to win that election? I think absolutely they do. And it's not just about the point we were making before about, well, being in power, but what are you going to do with it? It's also about a sense, and I think this is really true, and this is also was also true at the time in which I got elected, that governments that have been around for a while get tired. They run out of ideas without wanting to be too insulting with anybody. They run out of people or people that have got a level of, of credibility and aptitude to do the job. And so it's a process of renewal that is healthy for democracy that you have that change. I hope, and I don't know this because I'm not directly involved, but I hope that what we will see for the good of everybody over the next year or so is is much more sort of detail in terms of what the approach will be, other than being more competent than the current administration or the previous one and the previous one before that in the last few weeks. And I think that is important, by the way. I do think that credibility and competence is something that the public will look for, particularly in a time of crisis and difficulty, and that is underpinned by an approach which is about fairness and absolutely fairness as far as you can across the board. You know, it's not going to be the same inheritance as 1997, where having been after there being a significant economic shock, but there was then a a period of almost five years uh, of recovery. And actually, again, when you look back at it, the way in which Kenneth Clark as Chancellor in that period resisted the temptation to do crowd-pleasing things in the run-up to an election but rather instead to try to ensure that the fundamentals of the economy were stronger, was probably the basis for a lot of what then the incoming Labour government in 1997 was then able to do. They made significant changes, but they did it on a foundation of a pretty sound economic position, which was probably bequeathed as a result of four or five years of very, very careful stewardship after an economic crash. Now, Tom, we always ask leaders who we interview about how they sort of chill out and take a moment away from it all, particularly in tough times. And you're always traveling. You're in being in the US, been in South Korea recently. How do you get away from it all though? Because your nuclear is always in the news. Energy is always in the news. You could spend your day doing interviews, meeting industry organizations, uh, doing it all. But how do you get away from it? Well, uh, did you say relax? Because I'm not sure uh, what I do to get away from it is necessarily always relaxing, but I'm afraid like some others, I have an attraction to a particular football team in a particular part of southwest London, and that's what I do, basically. I go and watch football. I enjoy not just the football, but also what goes around watching live football. You know, the people that you you meet up, I've got friends who have got no interest in energy and no interest in politics or anything to do with it, but they're my oldest friends because I've gone to watch football with them for God knows how long now, almost 30 years. And we've scattered around the country and back again, but we've always got that constant. And I find it a really good way to be able to focus your attention for a while, get rid of some frustration and take your mind off the things that occupy your mind for the whole of the rest of your time. Unfortunately, though, because of probably the sort of person I am, I can't just leave it at going and watching football. I get involved in other things as well, which is how I end up as a member of the FA Council and doing various other things. So, you know, football quite often takes up a lot of my life as well and to some extent the politics of football what's going around in football but even so that is endlessly fascinating as well so I don't mind it too much 
Yeah, so anyone who uh, heard Tom talk about his Twitter feed earlier and who wants to view his Twitter feed, you'll mostly get football, it's fair to say, and his love of a wonderful little team in SW6 called Fulham. Uh, And so, Tom, how many games have you been to? This is early November 2022. How many games have you been to this year so far? It's quite a lot, isn't it? Uh, I think it's 60-something, 63, 64, something like that. That's like a full-time job (laughs) rather than a relaxation. If I'm anywhere in the world and there's a football match on, I'll try and go to it. That's your tribe, though, isn't it? That's the point. That's your tribe. Yes. That's where you fit in. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I even went to the extent of going to a Korean FA Cup third round game in a place near Busan earlier this year, which was in a municipal stadium that was, I think the crowd was about 250, and about 248 of them were people who happened to be junior players for one of the teams. Standard was appalling. But it didn't matter to me because it's live football and that's what works for me. And fan power has become very important in the football world. We saw fans reacting and having a real impact to help prevent a European Super League only, what, a year or so ago now? And you played a role in that as well through the FSA and you work on the FA Council. Does that make you really proud that fans' voices are being heard? I think for the first time for a very long period of time, because of not just the Super League, but because of that, and other things, you're seeing football authorities actually start to recognise that supporters have a legitimate voice and actually amongst supporter groups and in supporters bases, it's not like a group of people you can just take for granted and just assume will put up with absolutely everything that you throw at them. And actually, I think that's healthy for the game and the best clubs properly engage with their supporter groups and supporter bases, understand that, and they work with them on lots of various ways. And that works at its best, probably in the sort of lower divisions, maybe perhaps because there's more of an imperative to do so. But the best run clubs, the most stable clubs, the most established clubs tend to have a very good relationship with their supporter base that is recognising that football supporters care about their clubs, not just about the results, obviously care about the results. That's what you go for primarily. But also, as we've just discussed, clubs become part of your identity football clubs are cultural assets that have lived for a long time long beyond any owners that are likely to be involved in any clubs and they will do and they will endure and the only constant in football is the supporters and if you don't understand that then you don't understand football and if you've bought a football club and don't understand that you're probably setting yourself up for a pretty painful experience i think that's a brilliant point to end on Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real joy to chat through your career, your thoughts on leadership, particularly around crises, but also your thoughts on the importance of football fans to a sport which we all love. But thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed that insightful chat with Tom. Uh, I'm again joined by Karen White of National Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK. Gary, it's clear crisis preparedness is ingrained in the culture of Tom's industry, but he also talked about the danger of that culture being too overbearing and hurting innovation in the industry, uh, so they weren't learning from others. He said he wanted to challenge that thinking in the future, but getting that blend of risk right is critical for all industries, isn't it? If it's too strongly weighted on either side, there's a real danger people start to ignore rules they believe are impeding growth. Yeah, and I think also the key is what are we talking about here? I think sometimes when we discuss risk, it's easy to mistake that as saying what we mean is let's take a gamble. 
which is a worrying thing to hear come from the mouth of the head of a nuclear association. But I think the more relevant lesson to take here generally for a business leader is to set the objectives of what you need to achieve, but then be willing to listen, to adapt and to innovate in terms of how you achieve that. So new technology, new platforms, access to new forms of information, changes in consumer employee attitudes, changes in media, All of these provide an opportunity to refine and adapt how you set up to prepare for a crisis and then how you respond to it and the lever is available to you when you do respond to it. But you need to make sure that you have these systems in place now to bring you that information that you need so that you're able to properly prepare and properly respond when the time comes. Karen, what do you think? Yeah, I think when it comes to safety in the energy sector and responsible development, what I've always heard from proponents is that clarity of regulatory process even if they're vigorous, companies are prepared to meet them. And when we think about the transition that's happening in the sector and oil and gas companies moving into more diverse energies and renewable energies, you know, they're operating in highly regulated environments with very strict rules and regulation, yet they're still innovating, they're still evolving, and they're still experiencing growth in this time of transition. Any energy companies that I've worked with or sat around the board table with, they said just tell us the rules and we will meet and exceed expectations. And Gap, maybe it's because most of my work is outside of nuclear. That clarity of regulation, I think, is actually key to building confidence in industry so that they can do things and focus on innovation in this energy transition time. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think Tom, if he was here, would be pushing into where Gary is, really. This isn't about creating more risk. This is about using the clarity that is in the system to build more opportunities to innovate, which I think is fantastically interesting. A big thank you to Tom Gretricks for giving up his time today and discussing such important and timely issues. Now, reflecting on that chat that we just had, I'm reminded of Simon Sinek's book, The Infinite Game. In it, Sinek talks about how in 1986, a professor, James Cars, introduced the concept of two types of games. Finite games, where the players are known, uh, the rules are fixed, the end point clear, and where there are clear winners and losers. And then infinite games, where players come and go, rules change, there's no defined end point, and no winners and losers, only those people who are ahead and those people who are behind. He makes the case that leaders with a finite mindset lag behind, they lack innovation, effort, they fail the challenge, they have poor morale in their teams and ultimately poor performances within their businesses. Leaders with infinite mindsets build stronger and more innovative and more inspiring organizations. Their people trust each other more and their leaders um, are trusted by the team more. Challenge is welcomed. Cynic argues that infinite-minded leaders understand that best is not a permanent state, And instead, they strive to be better, a bit like Tom said there, really, about innovation. And better suggests a journey of constant improvement. It makes us feel that we are being invited to contribute our talents and energies to make progress in that journey, is what Cynic says. And that progress is particularly important given the challenges every organization now faces in an ever-challenging world. So Cynic's book really struck a chord with me. It is a mindset that seeks out the reputational gaps and fills them by rewiring proactively rather than reactively, as we discussed in that interview. And importantly for us all, it avoids crises that we all have to face at some point in everything we do, no matter what we do, because they play out as deep crises and damage our reputation for the long term if we're taking a reactive approach and not trying to get proactive to prevent them in the first place. So thank you for listening to White Swan. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, stay safe.
White Swan is brought to you by Hanover Communications and its global crisis network. To find out more, please visit hanovercoms.com. That's Hanover, H-A-N-O-V-E-R, comms, C-O-M-M-S dot com.